Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It's Monday, July the 10th. It is 9.30 on the East Coast and 8.30 here in Texas, America. Welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Um, got another one of the long-form interviews that we're going to be doing today. Interviewed a journalist. And this is kind of a profile series. We're doing a chance for you to get to know some of the journalists that are out there writing. This gentleman writes for the Gateway Pundit. And what I want you to be able to do is to evaluate critically the source of the information. So oftentimes we go when we find an article, the article seems to tell us something that we like, so we keep it. Uh, it tells us something we don't like, so we discard it. What I want people to do is to think critically and to evaluate everyone based on a few things. Number one, what is the access that this particular journalist has to the information? Number two, what is the bias that they bring to the story that they're writing? Do they have an agenda? And if so, is it something that is going to discredit what they are putting out? And one of the ways we do that is getting to know them as a person, asking the questions, where do they come from? What is the, the worldview that they look at? How is it that they assess the information that comes in? And do they have you know, some readily available biases that they're willing to admit to. So we can kind of put it in that lens and then decide whether to keep or discard the information that's being shared. That's the goal. That's what we're doing here. I'm going to give you a couple of profiles. This will be number two of our sort of blue collar journalists. And then once you have that information, I'm going to be bringing these people back on. You can always refer back to the long form profiles about who they are, because I want them to be able to kind of give us updates on what's going on in the world from another voice other than my own. And everybody is out there kind of investigating and and uh, analyzing and, and keeping track of different types of stories. We can't do them all. So the best opportunity we have is going to be to bring these folks on, share them with you. But first, I want to expose them to a little bit of our scrutiny so we can kind of decide how that information is being gathered and what we think of it. So that's that's really the goal here. Uh, you're going to really enjoy this interview. If you'll give me a uh, just a little bit of a mulligan, when we connected with Bradley, his uh, I'm sorry, with Sean, uh, his name is Sean Bradley uh, Witzman, and his video is mediocre for the first hour of this interview. So uh, bear with me on that. But the audio was very good, and that's really the most important thing to convey. So we didn't uh, we didn't have a fantastic visual presentation. I think you guys will get past it because the things he has to say are quite excellent. Before we get into any of those things, I do want to say quick thank yous to our sponsors, uh, particularly our friends over at Patriot Coolers. So let me pull them up real quickly here. Patriot Coolers, they are built for freedom. They are a American company out of Houston, Texas that makes an excellent product. They also sponsor the Kyle Serafin Show. You can use promo code Kyle, K Y. L-E. K-Y-L-E gets you 10% off. If you spend 50 bucks or more, you guys know the deal. You get free shipping. That's pretty easy to do. What you're seeing right there is a floating soft-sided cooler. This is one of the ones that I actually hold. I think that it's supposed to be rated for 24 cans, if you were to put that in there, plus some ice. Uh, I've been able to get 17 bottles. I put 17 bottles of Yingling in there when I loaded mine up and took it on the road. Uh, kind of nice because you can use it in the back of a vehicle. You can use it for trips to Costco or long trips to where you're going to have frozen goods. So it is actually something I, I end up using quite a bit. And then they also have their big rotomolded coolers. If you don't have like a Yeti or an Arctic or a big igloo like one of these things, keeps ice for days, uh, consider it. It's one of those great kind of tools you never know when you might do it. I keep one in the garage and we throw one in the back whenever we make a long trip. 
very helpful and an excellent uh, design. These things are as good or better than the uh, than the competition, I would say, and they're also less expensive. Plus, you're benefiting the veterans that they support with a, a little bit of all their sales. They go to support veterans mobility. Again, PatriotCoolers.com. You can find them on social media at Patriot Coolers, and you can use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E. Let's see here. Um, I've also got Catholic Vote up, and I want to bring this thing up before we do that. we got a little another angle here. You can see right up here on my screen, if you're watching on the Rumble channel, this is the loop that I get every morning. I get this in my email, and Catholic Vote has a couple stories that are going on. Like I said, they, they kind of give you just a little snapshot of what's happening in the country. The thing that I like in this case, there's a, a story about politics over medicine that's happening in Utah. There's a story about uh, liberals fighting bans on transgender surgery. You've got the uh, Southern Poverty Law Center and ACLU filing lawsuits in Georgia. Uh, there's another story about illegal immigrants being housed in New York City schools. So if you want to sign up and get some of these kind of quick, uh, quick and easy uh, useful stories. They're a mixture of Catholic Vote's own Newswire and some of the uh, the stuff that's out there on Breitbart and Fox and so on. Check them out at catholicvote.org. If you're watching the Rumble channel, you can see their, their splash page, their homepage, which has a spot just for your email and your zip code. And when you put that in, you will be able to get access to the loop. It will loop you in. We're a big fan of them, and we're really appreciative of what they've been up to kind of supporting us. So this is... Um, this is the day today you're going to be hearing a long-form interview with a Gateway Pundit reporter. I'll be back in here at the end of it. This is what we call a live premiere. So we taped this a couple days ago. So some of the information, if he references the actual day, I think we did this on the 4th of July. And uh, I'm going to be trying to put these in the can so that you guys can get them. There's not a lot of production other than just a couple of guys sitting down and talking. And Ryan Maddow was in the background making sure that it ran smoothly. So here we go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I think you're very much going to enjoy this. Like I said, excuse the video quality and let's rock and roll. And my guest today is Sean Bradley Weitzman. Hopefully I said that right, Sean. You have to correct me. He's an independent journalist, also known as a free-range journalist. He's got no restrictions. We're going to talk about where he's from, why he's a reporter now, and uh, and some of the wild things that he's seen. He's had an interesting journey. So let's get into that right now. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kyle. It's a pleasure. But, of course, you did say the name wrong. It is it is Witzman. So Witzman? Yeah. Is that a New Mexico thing, you think? No, it's, you know, it's honestly, it's supposed to be, you know, like Witzman, right? Because of the German thing. But, uh, you know, I don't I don't know where that goes along. It's been said Weitzman a lot. I don't know why. I think that just triggers me just because, you know, there immediately it seems to be some sort of connotation. But there's, yeah, there's sort of like a racial issue there. Yeah, it's probably after being called, you know, a violent insurrectionist for two and a half years. That probably has something to do with it as well. But that, that checks out. Yeah. So Witzman, <laughs> I should have known too, because you look a lot like one of my, uh, you could have been a cousin of my best buddy from high school. His last name is Metzger. And so he's oh, okay. got that Germanic kind of blood. He's got the same sort of head. It's kind of yeah. nice and round and smooth. Yeah. He's got kind of that Bulbous. raggedy beard look thing. Yeah. Bulbous yeah. head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so Sean, tell me where you're from. So I am from Farmington, New Mexico, a little town there in the Northwest corner of the state. Um, grew up there, born and raised, uh, you know, I was going to college, um, very early on and, and studying philosophy, psychology, kind of this, you know, various things didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I like too many subjects. That's kind of a problem, but, um, actually ended up at the time getting my girlfriend pregnant. And so my life took a different turn and I needed to take care of that. So I, I went into the family business. My father was a plumber, owned his own business. Uh, so I kind of followed in his footsteps, um, spent many years doing that, uh, managed another company in the area, became general manager of that, and then went on to start my own plumbing company in 2017. 
And, and that's, that's kind of the basis of that. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's any questions there, how we roll, but, uh, you know, from there, I guess I had my midlife crisis <laughs> and, and after being successful as a plumber, you know, I kind of looked back and I said, well, you know, I'm kind of pushing paper right now. I think I'll, you know, go back into doing, you know, maybe something more creative, something that I wanted to do. So I, I started a satire page in Farmington actually called the Farmington Tribune. And we would put out just fake stories. Some of them funny. Some of them were very based in, um, uh, reality that doesn't get discussed a lot of times you could mm -hmm. you could kind of cloak things within a within a dark joke sometimes uh so again that was that was very popular lots of viral posts one of the major ones that got reported on by nine news in denver was we had said uh that they were going to remove the big blue horse statue in front of dia because it had killed somebody uh so that is that, is that the one that, with the big red eyes yeah, yeah, Blucifer, they call it. So, you know, that one went nuts, very viral. You know, another story that went viral was we said the governor of New Mexico, Michelle Lujan Grisham, was going to make Ramadan a state holiday. That went <laughs> nuts. Uh, another one, I said that uh, local or officials from the Department of Game and Fish were smuggling marijuana into New Mexico so that they could sell it and make money for the state budget. Um, all these know, seem just, like very plausible. I guess that's how satire is, is done best. Well, yeah. And that probably has a lot to do with why I got into real journalism. You know, one of the reasons, um, is, is just because you write satire long enough, you start watching it come true and, and you're making stuff up, but boy, it's, it's been a wild three years. And, and, and that it's funny because when, when people would say that they were fake news stories. I would tell them, no, no, this has been independently verified by the Armenian Council for Truth and Journalism. And that was just <laughs> kind of a sarcastic joke. Uh, and, and you can go check that. There's there's still an article up from Nine News where they quoted me as saying that when it was still anonymous. Um, <laughs> and, and they had no and they had no ability to go and fact check that themselves. Well, like, well no, they I mean, they understood that, that it was funny. And I even had a fake you know, separate page set up that talked about how the council was founded at the foot of Mount Ararat when, you know, Noah uh, disembarked from the ark. <laughs> it, it was a whole thing. And, and, you know, so, th so they would go with it. And I just, I told nine news at the time, I said, as far as I know, your stories are not accredited, accredited by the ACTJ. So I cast a shadow of doubt on the assertion that your stories are anything other than fake news. So it was all very fun and tongue in cheek. But that actually ended up leading me, you know, after making those jokes, when I started my media company, Tribune Media International, in 2019, the first trip or the first idea I had was to go to Armenia and, you know, kind of satirically go find the Council for Truth and Journalism. So, so that's what I did. Um, that trip is like a whole story in and of itself, uh, very eye-opening, uh, kind of came face to face with some of the realities of, uh, you know, human trafficking and slavery in that region of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, so that had a profound effect on me, uh, to say the least. When I came back, the next trip was actually to the UK. And so I spent some time over there, Ireland, Scotland. What years and are these? So that would have been early 2020 was when I was in the UK. And when I got back from that trip in, oh man, it was, it was probably mid-February, as I recall. When I got back from that trip, you know, we were watching what was going on with, with the scamdemic and everything. And at the time, the plan was actually to go to Ukraine. 
uh, in the summer. I was planning on going to Ukraine, spending at least two months there. Uh, but you know, the world shut down, things changed, and I, I wound up getting wrapped up into American uh, politics or domestic matters. Uh, spent a lot of time covering uh, Black Lives Matter protests and riots. Uh, in Denver, I had correspondents really all over the world and, and the country that would send me in information or live stream journalism at the time. And so, you know, I was deep into that, you know, understanding what was going on there, uh, you know, seeing a lot of incitement, you know, bad actors on both sides, good actors on all sides, too. And so, you know, after the election, that's what, you know, led me to go and cover things in D.C. and around the country as far as the MAGA protests. Uh, you mentioned political protests. You mentioned sort of your your lens a little bit that you've got people from both sides. And, you know, that's a, an interesting nuanced position. What's your political bent? Oh, my political bent is I don't like politicians. <laughs> that's fair. Where does I that mean, leave you as far as, uh, you know, is there a major party you identify with or a no. upper or lower case? No, I, I've always been independent, uh, mm -hmm. always will be independent. I have no desire or need to join a political party. Um, it's just not something I was ever interested in. I voted for people in all parties uh, over the years, to be honest. So, you know, I'm not, I think, I think, you know, obviously after, you know, getting wrapped in January 6th and all of that, you know, there was definitely false information, or I guess I would say incomplete information as far as to what my political ideology is. Um, I've often told people that philosophically, I'm an anarchist. Um, you know, now pragmatically, I'm a constitutionalist. So sometimes the, that kind of concept or nuance is difficult for people to understand. But, you know, that's after years of, of thinking about the matter, thinking about freedom, uh, a big fan of Tolstoy, and his writings. So those are highly influential into my thinking. And, and just really trying to be, as a journalist, trying to tell both sides of the story, regardless of any biases I may have. And I, and I do try to put that aside. You know, obviously, it doesn't always work out. Uh, but I try to at least be honest about that as well. Do you think there's a lot of plumbers that read Tolstoy? <laughs> you know, I don't know. The thing is, I there there probably is more than people realize. Um, you know, I was mm -hmm. kind of remarking on this because some of the recent uh, news that's come out about UAP disclosure or otherwise, and there was a there was a gentleman that was part of the Greer um, kind of disclosure conference in D.C. a few weeks ago. What is UAP? Uh, unidentified anomalous phenomena. So, Got you know, it. UFOs and things like that. Understood. Um, yep. But there was a, there was an HVAC guy and, and he worked down at the South Pole station in Antarctica. And, you know, a lot of people that I've spoken to about his testimony, where he was actually discussing the idea of the South Pole station being used as, you know, an earthquake machine. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of people I've spoken to, they said that he would be in a position to kind of see past the compartmentalization. And admittedly, people who are in those trades understand a lot of engineering principles, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's electrical, fluid dynamics, um, you know, so all these different things. So it's like science is all wrapped up in that industry as well. So, you know, I think there's more, you know, to get back to the question, uh, I think there's probably more intellectual tradesmen than people realize. I think you're correct. And uh, we just had one a moment ago on our show talking about that. And and he was an HVAC guy. And so 
Historically, reporters have come from blue collar backgrounds. They have sort of a fundamental understanding of how the world works, right? And then they go out there and they report on it for everyday people who are oftentimes tradesmen and things like that. Um, what was the transition that got you in that you went from writing satirical, you know, did you, did you have some real push impetus or was it just the natural evolution when you were dealing with that? Well, yeah, I think there was, there was, it's like, it was meant to happen. I, I often speak about, you know, divine providence or, uh, retro causal effects where it almost seems like things are laid out before you in a certain aspect. It was interesting. If you talk about the blue collar part of that story early on in 2016, uh, my neighborhood in Farmington, New Mexico didn't have any water because the local water company was having issues. Mm -hmm. So a friend of mine, we actually said, well, nobody else is looking into this. So we went and investigated it. I actually went to the water treatment plant, acted like I owned the place, said I was there to do an inspection and I did an inspection. And then I released all that information publicly. <laughs> Sorry. I just, uh, that, that's the classic ruse. And it seems yeah. like you have a, an instinct on how to do that. I keep talking to people that claim to be journalists that have no idea how to how to get information in a way that is creative, let's call it. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it's funny. And I think that's part of it, too. Uh, you know, when you troubleshoot complex systems, you have to have an understanding of complex systems. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with a lot of different components that can go bad. Um, so you're kind of trying to paint an understanding of a very, you know, complicated picture. And that's and so I think all of those skills you know, uh, as an analyst play into being a journalist and then just my desire to really help people. I mean, that's, that's a genuine desire. You know, I have a desire to tell the truth. You know, as I mentioned, the trip to Armenia was life changing. Um, I had heard things about human trafficking and even had some even more personal experiences in that regard, uh, prior to going there, but to kind of just see the amount of money, uh, that goes into that industry, I guess that was, what was somewhat shocking you know that it's interesting last night i was just speaking to an expert on human trafficking and and that's what she was saying is a major misconception is that people just think it's the elites it's it's but it's not it's a massive you know global business and it's slavery and it's and it's very dark so i think that plays a lot into why i wanted to get more serious obviously i saw things turning south in ukraine which is why i wanted to go over there i wanted to spend some time in the donbass and and investigate that and speak to the people on the ground and learn more about them you know i'm very fascinated with eastern europe in general as far as lessons that america can learn about you know how to survive the collapse of an empire because i think we've got to look around at the world and say things are not going well for the united states right now on this july 4th you know we've That's got a lot of tough we got a lot of tough times ahead yeah, I think that uh, I think that's a sobering look at it. So let's let's discuss uh, maybe America and then maybe the lessons we can take in from what you've seen outside. Um, for starters, you were one of the people covering the events that happened on January 6th. I saw that your your bio says something about gonzo journalism. Can you tell people what yeah. gonzo is and and how you see yourself in your role as a journalist? Well, gonzo journalism, I mean, it goes back to creative ways of finding the truth. I mean, to go full gonzo, you pretty much inject yourself into a story and you roll with it. Um, it's modeled off of the work of the great doctor of journalism, Hunter S. Thompson. He's a doctor of journalism, man. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, but 
But that's, you know, his style of telling a story was always my favorite. You know, even when we talk about Matt Taibbi, you know, being a big inspiration as well. Growing up, I would read his work in Rolling Stone. And I, and I always appreciated the kind of raw honesty aspect of it. So that's something I tried to model in myself. And then when you're doing live stream journalism, again, it's, it's to your advantage to just get into it. It's like I say, you know, when I was embedded essentially with uh, Proud Boys uh, throughout the three different protests in D.C., I was down in Atlanta and Phoenix as well. You know, if you're, if you're just kind of hanging out with them, drinking beers and having a good time, you learn a lot one way or the other. And so that was very important to me, you know, to get that truth out, especially after spending a summer covering uh, BLM protests and trying to kind of humanize a lot of that while people were making threats. You know, these kids were standing in the street, making their voices heard for whatever it's worth. And people are going, oh, we're going to run them over. We want blood on the streets. And it just gets it just gets insane. And I saw the same thing going on where when when I ran into Proud Boys on November 14th, I didn't know a whole lot about them. I only knew what the media reports were. And I saw a completely different picture. I saw people who had lots of different political ideologies, who came from blue collar backgrounds, who weren't racist, who weren't white supremacists. And I thought that was a story that needed to be told. So, you know, that's that's really what I did. And it was that work that led me all the way inside the Capitol on January 6th. You mentioned that they're not white supremacists. They have different ideologies. They're not racist. Why do you think the smear has been that that Ben? And, and by the way, I. I've seen I've seen this done inside the FBI. They've actually said these things. So how did that catch on? Well, I think look, let's if if we're being very honest, there there are white supremacist proud boys. Okay. But I think that that also speaks to their overall ideology that they struggled with as an organization where they wanted to be pro free speech, free speech absolutists. That's part of their tenets. Mm-hmm. And and so I know that there were struggles about that about how to deal with people who were, you know, white supremacists or otherwise. And, you know, that was why their general attitude was to just not talk to the press. I think that that probably hurt them on a, you know, on a PR level in some respects, but again, that's their decision. And then the other thing is, I think it's just advantageous for a controlled left-wing media to paint any opposition to their agenda as somehow being extreme. So you think it's a left-wing prerogative to to put that out there? Well, yeah. And and from a I mean if you step back and you look at it from a 100,000-foot view, you know, this is something that I've spoken about a lot is the work of Yuri Bezmenov, the defected KGB officer who worked on ideological subversion and trying to destroy the United States at the behest yep. of the Soviet Union. And what he spoke about was the way that they would use kind of progressive leftist push, you know, a push in that direction to actually incite the right wing into violence and overthrow the government, which would destabilize the entire country and the USSR wins. And I think we're still dealing with that. So you have a lot of people who are behaving in ways that are against their own best interests, and they don't even know it. And that's and that's what's really sad is we're seeing that last stage of the ideological subversion campaign. Can you give an example of people acting against their their interests? January 6th. Okay. Great let's, example. Let's, yeah, let's let's talk about that. So you're there on the ground. Yeah. Um, how did people act against their best interest in the, on that day? Well, I think a lot of people went there, uh, especially later, just to make their voices heard, didn't understand, and they got sucked into something that was much bigger than them. You know, I've kind of, 
you know, I know that there's different things that have come out, you know, obviously a lot of the work that I've done with Condemned USA and, and just in the overall investigation, you know, knowing that there were people from DHS there, there were other undercovers there. But, you know, from my perspective, from what I see right now, I'm not seeing entrapment. What I'm seeing is flocking behavior in human beings where, you know, you, you could call that mob mentality or anything else like that, where they just get sucked into the emotion of the moment and, and they behave in ways that are outside of their character. And that was not in their best interest because in the end, it's like I said, even in my allocution statement to my judge, in my case, I said, I said that, that, you know, people did not behave. That's just a fact. And that doesn't excuse all of the other bad actors or bad policing that we saw. You know, DC Metro has a long, long history of really unacceptable behavior. Um, but, but it shut down any legitimate investigation mm -hmm. of the vote. And so I think that that was a huge problem. And that's what I, and then again, that's what I told my judge. I said, I didn't benefit from that. So if you're looking for somebody who wanted that to happen, it wasn't me. You know, I, I didn't want that to happen and people can believe it or not, but you know, I wouldn't even have gone into the building if I wasn't there as a journalist. If I had been there with my family, I would have said, this is a mess and we need to leave. You know, but after yeah. covering all this stuff for months, again, I'm not scared of tear gas. You know, I'm not scared of pepper spray. You just get I don't into like tear the gas. Mix. Yeah, I'm gonna go on record. I, I I am scared of tear gas. It's my least favorite thing. It makes it's me look like fun. a mess. No, it's yeah, awful. it's no, it's 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 not fun. But you know, and and for me, it it wasn't a fun day. It never was. I mean, I've often remarked after leaving that, you know, when when everybody was getting crushed inside of the rotunda, when police were shoving them out. You know, I looked up at the eye and I was like, this might be the last thing I ever see. Now, people may think that that's kind of like extreme or, you know, dramatic. Maybe it was. But in the moment, you know, I'm looking at the situation. People are getting crushed. You have cops and protesters begging each other to make some room. There was a woman that had gotten thrown to the ground and I was trying to help push people away from her to make room for her. You know, there was a there was a lot of ways for people to die that day. And, you know, to this day, I'm just thankful that it, that the death toll wasn't more than what it ended up. So uh, Steve Baker, who we discussed kind of off uh, camera. Yes. Yeah. He goes by the pragmatic constitutionalist or the used to be the pragmatic libertarian. And Steve Baker calls it the greatest political messaging victory in history. Something to that effect. What do you make of that? And if you were to zoom out to the 30,000 foot view and look at January 6th, what do you see as the sort of the big pieces that were moving, taken away from the individual stories? Well, I think the big pieces that were moving is that I would often call it, you know, Reichstag 2.0. Mm -hmm. uh, the Democrat Party used it to demonize their political opponents, 100%. When we reach a time in this country where they felt that it was necessary to spend time and resources from the Department of Justice to come after me, when my great crime there, which admittedly was a breach of objectivity, you know, was saying brothers stand with us to a Capitol police officer. That's, that's what I did. That's what they used central to my prosecution, which I, again, I admit, you know, when you look at the letter of the law, sure, we can interpret it that way. Fine. Okay. I'm guilty, but it's just, it, it doesn't shine brightly on freedom of speech. And I think we've seen lots of other political protests, um, throughout the years. And I think that America would be better served by finding ways to be lenient in those situations, but they can't do that. And I, and it doesn't do anything to legitimize the Biden administration. 
when you have people like myself who are convinced that the election was stolen and rigged, and and then you have people who might not be sure, you know, they might be going back and forth. It doesn't really matter what happened because what you have now is an illegitimate government because because so many people don't ascribe any legitimacy to it. So it's like Machiavelli said, if you know, it's better to be feared than loved if you can't do, you know, have both. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's the situation that the Biden administration is in is that they have to exact a certain amount of fear into their opposition. And honestly, it's having a very very good effect for the most part, let's be honest. You don't see right wing protests. They're being successful at what they've they've put out there is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, again, yeah, it has been successful messaging. Obviously, there's plenty of people who are convinced that a violent insurrection occurred. I, I don't see it as that. You know, it was definitely a riot, uh, but it was not an insurrection. You know, people often make the joke and they say, well, where were the guns? And I know that there were some weapons there that have been found, you know, throughout the process. But when, when I consider kind of the hyperbole that I hear from, you know, my, some of my more right-wing friends, you know, it's like, well, it's just hyperbole at some point. And, and, you know, I don't know. I think it all just increases the division. I think that there's people in the Democratic Party who think that it works out well for them. But in the end, all I see is that, you know, those actions further destabilize our country. And when you say it works out for them, it moves their political agenda. But it sounded like your your belief is that actually ends up being a big backswing, which gets to a fully destabilized state, which actually doesn't benefit them in the all. Yeah, I think we've seen that throughout history. Um, you know, the pendulum will swing mm -hmm. when it swings hard to the left, as it did in Weimar, Germany, prior to Hitler's takeover. It's it swung very hard back to the right. It went straight to traditional values and loading people up and sending them to concentration camps. So I could see yeah, it people, going the other way really bad. Honestly. People get really upset when you start making analogies to to the Nazi party, to what happened in 1930s Germany. And yet that seems like the, the most logical conclusion to look at what we have going on right now. I keep I keep making them because I, I'm a free speech kind of absolutist as well. I'm fine with people who are actual Nazis talking. Um, yeah. and, and I would actually interview an actual Nazi if that's what they if they if there's someone that's still around from that republic or if they're a neo-Nazi, I'll talk to them, too, because. Think their ideas are bad and they should be exposed but um what, what do you think the pushback is that is making people try to self-censor from discussing it in these terms well everybody feels as though they're surveilled um you know we've seen the rise of all these secure messaging apps which i don't really think are all that secure <laughs> um and so people are self-censoring they don't they don't want to speak out they don't want to you know tell everyone what they think. We haven't seen any large protests, even though, you know, we're seeing traditional values continue to be eroded. And, and again, I'm not somebody who's hyper conservative by any stretch of the imagination, but I do understand that as a society, you need to have a certain amount of traditional value in order to, or in order to hold yourself together. Whether people like it or not, the United States is an empire. And, and you don't have a declining empire work out well for the peasants, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It just, it just never turns out well. So, you know, again, I think that it's, it's immensely important for people to use their first amendment 
you know, that's why even through everything I went through, you know, being prosecuted, I, I really refused to shut up the entire time because that was all I had left. There was a possibility if I had gone to trial, convicted on all four charges that, you know, I would go and spend at least a year in prison. You know, so I knew that that was going to effectively silence me. So it was very important for me to keep speaking. And in the end, I used the allocution process and and my statements to the judge at sentencing to bring up the fact uh, that there's evidence to suggest that Roseanne Boylan was murdered. You know, I think, you know, that that's how you speak truth to power. There's a way to do it. And, and it has to be peaceful. That's I think that's what people don't recognize in all of it is like the power of what Gandhi did in India when you talk about peaceful non-compliance. And I think that, that, that the right wing of America could learn a lot from that. They could honestly learn a lot from the hippie movement in the 60s and how effective that was. You have to be smart and you have to be peaceful and you have to be willing to be punished and hurt and maybe even killed for saying the wrong thing. Because if you're dealing with a regime that has no respect for your inalienable right, to speak that's that's what you have to do let's talk about that a little further i had another yeah. question i was going to bring back because you mentioned about the votes and i want to do i want to come back to uh the 2020 election but before we do that let's let's continue down that path now peaceable resistance martin luther king civil rights the heavy movement and what we saw you know gandhi doing resisting the british empire how do you see those kind of lessons um specifically how like what specific tactics would you recommend to people that are trying to make their voice heard on the right? I think there's nothing wrong with gathering in the streets. Nothing at all. I think that as things continue to devolve, if if there is no action from Congress um, to really address any of these issues and people feel as though the elections are rigged, what else do you have? You know, and I think that Americans who really feel that strongly about the situation our country is in right now you know, I often say, well, they, you know, they always want to go to the Second Amendment and they want to get violent. And, you know, that's the rhetoric you hear. But I still contend that if you're not willing to just be peaceful and be murdered for your freedom, then maybe you're not that serious about it. You know, Joe Biden talks about, you know, oh, you, you better have some F-16s. And people will joke about all they want. But, you know, I have a lot of friends in the military. And the general consensus is, is that if the military is ordered to go after American citizens, they're probably going to do it. I agree so, with you. You know, that's that's you've got to understand the battlefield that you're playing on. You know, this is simple art of war fundamentals where if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you're going to be successful 100% of the time. But if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you're going to lose in every battle. And right now with the way the grassroots America, you know, kind of MAGA America is approaching it, I'm not sure they really understand themselves. So it's 50-50 in a lot of ways. I think that they have a relatively good understanding of their opposition in this, you know, and really the opposition to America. But until they start understanding how their own actions will be weaponized against them, I don't see much change. Let me play a little devil's advocate. This country, unlike many, well, like many, I guess, was founded on a violent revolution. We had to overthrow a, a British crown, uh, one of the strongest empires in the history of the world and was successful in doing so. Is there a lesson to be learned that shows that this is different or that, uh, you know, wh why was, why is nonviolence the tactic that should be most successful? 
Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the kinds of weapons that we're dealing with right now. I think it's important for people to remember that whatever they show you isn't even close to what they have. Um, that's just the reality. I, you know, there's there's some very scary things out there. We've already seen, you know, bioweapons, and there's a million different conspiracy theories. Some are valid, some are not. About capability, I know earlier we mentioned earthquake machines. You know, the science is pretty solid behind that theoretically. So, you know, I don't I don't really have any doubt to that effect. There's just a lot of ways for these corporate entities that have really taken our government over to hurt us if they so choose. We we know the ties between the World Economic Forum and various compartments of our government. It's it's not a good situation. So when you look at it and you say, okay, violent revolution, I think you also have to look back to 1776. You have to look back to 1773. You have to look back to the Olive Branch Petition. All of these things that preceded that final Declaration of Independence. And in the end, and in the end, even the Declaration of Independence itself was a peaceful act. Now, you know, the King of England could have at any point said, okay, that's fine. I don't, I don't want any of that. But it was setting up a defensive boundary. It was not taking offensive action necessarily. And I think that that's a good line for people to maintain within this entire um, atmosphere ideologically is that, is that that's fine. You set up defenses. I know that everybody, you know, holds the second amendment to be sacred. But again, that goes back to, you know, I don't like going to the, to the discussion of second amendment until we fully exercised our first. So I guess, I guess that's, that's my take on that is that, and then the other thing is violent revolution is very rarely successful at winning the peace afterward. Mm -hmm. When you look back at the scope of history, the fact that the United States was able to kind of come together and hold itself together for so long after a violent revolution, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Usually you have a revolution and then someone else comes into the power vacuum afterwards and the people who were revolutionaries get murdered. That's usually well, and, how it works. And people forget there was a war of 1812. It wasn't like the uh, yeah. everything was established. It's like, well, they just came back again, you know, half generation later, a generation later and decided to push yeah. again. So it's not like the British gave up on it. And many people don't realize that at any moment, all that stuff could have collapsed, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, there's just a lot of things to consider. So it's like, you know, get back to that. It's just, you know, it's it's about being wise. It's about understanding the battlefield that you're on. You know, that's the first thing. So you you mentioned going to the First Amendment before the Second. I think that's a, I think that's an interesting point. And then on top of that, there's a messaging campaign that was successful in 1776 and prior, which was essentially establishing a moral high ground. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. And it seems like the political left is very good at doing that, using the first to be able to set themselves up as the moral high ground. Um, are you saying that the that the people on the right are actually failing in that manner in some ways? Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. Um... You know, I, I'll mention it because there were a lot of J6 documentaries that went around. The one that I worked on, which was Bloody Hill, which was put out by, you know, Dave Summerall, StopHate.com, Trinus Evans that I work with at Condemned USA, and actually Juan Osavin. You know, the, the one we put out was less of a documentary, and I've always said it's more of a propaganda film. And I think it's, I think it's important to use propaganda effectively to win hearts and minds. And I think that that's where the right has generally failed. I mean, they, we can sit back now and watch the Biden administration fail. And I suppose you win certain hearts and minds while that failure occurs. But I think you need to be more proactive. You need to explain people 
why traditional values are important. You have to explain to people why civil war would be really bad. Um, and I think that if that was more central to messaging, you know, maybe more uh, coming together and understanding that America is a melting pot of a lot of different ideologies and cultures and backgrounds, you know, I think that's our strength as a country, as a republic. And so that's, you know, if I have and my druthers, hearts and minds, you know, we should lean into. And that, honestly, you know, that's definitely the spin I try to put on just about every story I put out. All right. Let's do 2020 a little bit. Let's talk about why you believe and you feel very confident. You said there's some people that are on the fence. There's some people that are that are convinced. Why are you in the convinced category that 2020 was not a fair or legitimate election? Well, you know, I've seen a certain amount of the analysis that was done by people like uh, Dave Clements and a lot of those people in that group. Um, as it's mentioned, I have many, many good friends at uh, high levels in the intelligence community, and that's their opinion based off things. I've, I've heard stories that would blow people's minds uh, that I won't get into, but I think that there's there's problems there. Um, and, and honestly, again, whether or not, you know, this is kind of where I get to it because it doesn't matter if it was really stolen. People think it was stolen. So that's a psychological problem that's going to have to be addressed one way or the other. And if the Democrats aren't interested in addressing that, and if establishment Republicans aren't interested in addressing that, you know, you kind of go, well, why is that? You know, elections have been rigged as far back as anybody can remember. I mean, to me, the, this wasn't the first time, you know, perhaps it was, you know, more egregious than other others in history. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly wasn't the first time they used to do it with paper ballots. And honestly, I think that had a lot to do with why we moved away from paper ballots. It's my opinion that Al Gore won the 2000 election. You know, so, you know, I just think it's a continuation and, and the problem is, is that it just further destabilizes. It delegitimizes our government and destabilizes our country. So that's why it has to be addressed one way or the other. And when I see people who don't want to address it, I, I, I tend to wonder if they're in on it or if they're benefiting from it in some way. Yeah, I guess that was my next question. We noticed that the Republicans are not really addressing the January 6th problems. They're not going out there and, and campaigning on it. Why do you think they, why do you, why do you attribute that as a political loser for them? Cause that seems to be the way they're, they're treating it. Well, I think their attitude is it's a political loser because in some ways it is. In some ways it is. Uh, a lot of people that I've spoken to outside of the January 6th kind of circle of influence, you know, people within that circle think it's a very important story. Mm -hmm. And I think it is, it's hard to communicate to people how important it is sometimes. Um, but you know, Republicans are going to continue to stray away from that as much as possible. You know, I think that we see a certain hawkish attitude uh, from certain members of Congress and leadership in the Republican Party that are very happy to continue leading us into World War III in Ukraine. Um, you know, so that's that's on the top of their agenda. And then the other thing is a lot of people are just paid off. That's that's the reality. A lot of people are paid off. You know, when we look at everything that happened, you know, Sam Bankman fried the FTX scandal, you know, where we had funds going over to Ukraine and then kind of working their way right back. And, and you watch, you know, money get dumped into the pockets of McCarthy and others. You know, you go, well, what's going on there? Can you prove anything based off of those circumstances that, you know, you know, is, uh, you know, definitive? No, not really. You probably could if you investigated it with subpoena power. But we're not seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you, you touched earlier on Roseanne Boylan. You want to kind of flesh out your your take on that? I know you wrote a piece about it, so let's maybe talk about that. Yeah, I know Tommy Tatum. He's he's a guy who was there that day at the tunnel. Uh, he's been very outspoken from the get go. Do you saying, mind setting the scene too for people? Kind of um, visual, you know, top down. Where are we at in the in yeah. the protest? Where are we at in the timeline? So people can really understand this because I think a lot of people don't. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline, and I wasn't in that specific area. Mm-hmm. But it was after, you know, there there had been crowd control munitions getting fired into the crowd, and the crowd was very agitated, and people were trying to get into the building, trying to get into the tunnel. There were com- confrontations with police going back and forth uh, between protesters and or rioters um, and and others, and so it was it was it was a horrible situation, uh, really really dangerous situation, and you know. It seems after looking at video, listening to those that were there, you know, that at some point, you know, Roseanne passed out and, you know, she was in danger. And, you know, the the prevailing narrative or attitude is, you know, they even said she overdosed on methamphetamine, which, you know, wasn't true. You know, that came out in the autopsy. And, and you know, then, then you know, you have Lila Morris on video, just, you know, beating her now is lila morris lila morris is a metro police officer dc metro police officer they they honored her after january 6th as one of the heroes along with fanon Mm -hmm. and you know that's you know i didn't see heroic action there to be really honest whether or not it was her beating of roseanne that led to her death we will never know because roseanne's body has been cremated was that the family's choice nope who made that nope. decision? Do that you know? was that decision was made by DC. Interesting. So, so that was and that was really all of the bodies from the day. You know, they were all cremated. You know, they they wanted to conduct a real quick look at it, kind of a cursory examination, so that they could release something to the public and then move on from it. You know, it's it's egregious. There should have been more investigation into it. Um, and and frankly, without the body, I'm sure you would know from your work, it's very difficult. So, you know, that's, that's where we're at. You know, Tommy Tatum was in court that day and I'm trying to even, you know, gosh, I, I write too much, but, uh, you know, that was kind of the central thing was that he get up, he got up during that, uh, hearing and he said, I saw her, I saw her murdered. Now that's under oath. So people can take that for whatever it's worth. I think you would even agree that eyewitness testimony is oftentimes quite unreliable, but I think, I think that it, it just kind of paints a more nuanced picture. And I think if the media was being honest, they would be more inclined to look at that nuance. And we're not seeing that. We don't see a media that seems particularly interested in anything (laughs) uh, other than sort of parroting talking points. I I see that from my position. Would it surprise you to know that when I was working in DC, none of my friends had a reliable contact that they thought was both honest and reputable at DC Metro? None of them. Wouldn't surprise me at all. It wouldn't surprise me at all. We put out an article at condemnedusa.org that talked about the legacy of brutality when it comes to DC Metro. Very corrupt, very corrupt. Uh, going all the way up to Yogananda Pittman, who was the chief of intelligence, it seems. I know, you know, I Well, read she was Stephen at Capitol Sons Police, book, correct? Yeah. yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, Capitol Police. Sorry, that's my bad, but I, uh, I kind of fast forwarded in my mind. 
I understand. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously yeah. they work together all the time. Um, all all protests that take place around the Capitol, which are, you know, weekly, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah, I think something that's interesting that uh, actually a friend of mine pointed out to me, and I can't remember his first name, but Officer Tao. A lot of people have said that he was uh, the DC Metro officer that made the decision to start firing uh, less than lethal, lethal munitions into the crowd on January 6th. And there was a really interesting, I wouldn't call it an altercation, but definitely a tense interaction between he and a, a kind of, you know, prominent member of proud boys out of Portland on December 12th. And that's what a lot of people don't see in the entire scope of things either, is that it was an increasingly tense situation between the police and between, uh, you know, right-wing protesters, including Proud Boys, who'd been there demonstrating, dealing with violence against, you know, MAGA supporters for for months on end, and no real response from the police. So it was kind of, it was it was primed and ready to blow on January 6th, and that's that's really what happened. You know, again, the, the things that happened at the tunnel are egregious, you know, from a lot of different perspectives. You know, there were a lot of bad actors on both sides, in my opinion. Yeah, and that's not, that's not what we would like to see in this country. We would like to see, you know, peaceful redress of grievances. Um, but that doesn't, that doesn't absolve bad actors from the, from the police, from responsibility, especially now when we're, we're talking about, you know, just destroying so many people's lives over misdemeanor crimes, which is, you know, even, even the special agent that uh, handled my case, you know, he told me, he said, this is a giant waste of time and money. That's interesting that they acknowledge it. Where was that agent out of? He was out of Farmington. Oh yeah, well that I re- makes, yeah that I makes released sense. the video. That's my old office, I, by the way. Oh well, see there. You so go. Al- Albuquerque is the is the field office. Farmington is the satellite office yeah. or the resident agency. Yep. And um, you don't have to tell me. We'll we'll talk offline about the the name of the yeah. agent because uh, there's some decent, really decent human beings out there that I've dealt with. I was like I said, I was looking at going out there at some point. Mm-hmm. So I I kind of dug into him, and the supervisor was a hundred. He retired sort of in protest. He planned on being on there longer. And you may know that he may end up being a sheriff out there at some point around uh, some family members of yours. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. They were like, you know, I, that's something I'm always, um, I, I always like to mention in this. A lot of people had their homes raided, their doors broken down the whole nine yards. And the special agent who was handling my particular case, I'll always be thankful for him for really kind of taking a stand for me in that situation. Um, where, when the order came down from the Department of Justice that I was going to be arrested, they did tell him. They they told him that they wanted him to do the whole shock and awe Michael Sherwin garbage. And and he just told them no. He said, Sean will turn himself in. I'm not going to do that to him. So he gave me a call and I turned myself in. And it was, you know, it was peaceful. He took me down to the the prison there in Grants, New Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I got processed and I was out. You know, and so that all went off without a hitch, and it wouldn't have happened that way if it hadn't been for his wisdom in the situation. Let's talk about people taking a stand on that, knowing that the system does a certain thing, um, but you can be compliant and do what you're told from D.C., or you can do what I would say is the right thing and, and allow you to surrender. We're not seeing that happen all over the place. What do you attribute that to in the, in the agent that you dealt with? Well, you know, again, you know, I had done satire in the area for years. Uh, Some of that satire had already made certain politicians very angry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it's my understanding that I had been investigated a couple of times, you know, as being the anonymous owner of this satirical news site. So I think that there was a certain amount of, you know, they knew me. And even in that community, there was a fair amount of love for me. 
So it would have been really, really bad within the community for them to do that. Uh, you know, I obviously had the ability to project a certain amount of that, you know, maybe not as much as some, but locally, yeah, it would have been projected and everybody would have seen it and they would have had to deal with blowback because of that. So even if he wasn't, you know, hundred percent on board, I think that that was wise in that particular situation. Um, but I, you know, honestly, you know, my dealings with the FBI there locally, they were as positive as they could be. They were respectful the entire time. And again, I was honest. I never ran away from the fact that I was there. Um, you know, I gave a very early interview to them, told them everything that I saw, what I knew, the whole nine yards. Um, because even at that time, I knew that there was squirrely things that needed to be investigated. Um, so again, that's, you know, that's what it is. I, I think in some ways, you know, there's probably some people that you don't have a choice if I'm being very, very honest. Um, but most of those are not going to be misdemeanors. You know, so, you know, but, but again, that brings us back to the whole thing. Gosh, you know, why are we even going after people for misdemeanors? I think that that has made going after some of the more violent actions that occurred on that day that much more difficult. So, you know, I, 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 as usual on most subjects, I can have one of 17 different minds. That makes sense. And, and when you say it makes it more difficult to go after those who are violent, you're saying it legitimizes the entire process from your view. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that there's a, there's narratives on both sides of the political spectrum that have taken over. And I don't think either one of them are particularly accurate. So if, if they had been more reasonable and pragmatic with going after people who did engage in violence with police, then those cases would have gotten more attention. There wouldn't have been, as you know, this kind of shift away from other matters that are very concerning. You know, so I, again, it just comes down to, you know, really poor allocation of resources. And do you think that's nefarious or something else? Well, I, you know, you could probably speak to this as well as anybody. When it comes to the government, it's hard to figure out what's planned and, you know, what's incompetence. So true. You know, so it's, you know, there's a lot of money involved. There's politics involved. Sure, there's nefarious actors within that. But then there's plenty of others, just like on January 6th, that didn't have nefarious intention that get just kind of sucked into the, into the, into a situation that's a much bigger than they are. So, you know, I think, again, that, that comes down to looking at each case individually. You, you really have to. You can't just paint the entire day with a broad stroke and expect there to be any truth. We're going to be talking about January 6th for the rest of my lifetime, probably. And, you know, that's, that's not something I'm particularly thrilled about, but uh, that's how it is sometimes. When I was talking to Steve Baker, I mentioned I did a podcast called The American Rorschach Test, which is what I think January 6th is. How does that sit with you as a metaphor? Kind of elaborate on that a little bit. Well, the Rorschach test is the classic ink blot. Mm -hmm. So people put a spot of ink down, they fold over the paper, it okay. shows you some sort of some sort of image, and then um, they do psychological profiles based on what people see in it. And I think there's something there about January 6th. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah, that's that's probably a very good way to look at it. You know, I know that, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether Antifa was involved, and I've kind of pushed back against that a lot. I never saw much to suggest that. Yeah, yeah, Bobby Powell's video. He, you know, I've talked to Bobby a lot about that. And, um, you know, we have a difference of opinion for sure. I've but, had people send me that video. What do you, what do you think that they think it shows? And what do you think that it shows from your end? 
I mean, look, if you're going to speculate, it could show just about anything. Do those guys look like they could be fed boys of some sort? I mean, sure. I, I still don't think that you're going to see much direct um, evidence of that. I think even when you look at, you know, DHS or other things, look, if, if there were, and, and again, I have good sources that have told me that there were different intelligence operations there that day that I trust. And I've, I've reported on that since, you know, January 20th of 2021 but those would be compartmentalized and there's not going to be a paper trail i mean i think people have a misunderstanding about how all of that works i mean yes. it's intended they, well, people it's, definitely have a misunderstanding <laughs> yeah well it's intended to stay clandestine so whatever was going on there if there were clandestine you know activities and operations there i mean good luck getting that information because without the director of national intelligence signing off on declassifying that information nobody's going to know about it that's how that works. And human intelligence, yeah. even unclassified stuff, ends up hidden away. Sources and methods get exactly. buried for 25 years or 50 years, depending on how you want to. Well, sure. And, yeah, and even the DOJ right now, because I was trying to FOIA you know, some, some communications that apparently occurred between FBI and other sections of the U.S. Attorney's Office and my uh, former attorney that they don't want to disclose to me. And that's, that's pretty much what they say is, oh, well, this is confidential. So that's another fight that I'm going through with them right now. So, yeah, I mean, trying to peel back those layers of a very smelly onion is is difficult. And and that goes back to leadership. I often said when it comes to January 6th and all of the abuses that we see in the aftermath, there's going to have to be a political solution. You know, I don't have a whole lot of faith in the judiciary right now. I did a, a full podcast discussing how the Nazis, after the Reichstag fire, basically delegitimized the judiciary in order to take on, you know, the goals that they had to implement those nationwide you see the same parallels with that oh yeah i mean that's that's what i come back to left wing or right wing this isn't good for america mm -hmm. in a society you're always going to deal with left wing and right wing forces that's that's as old as the hills and so as we again we delit we delegitimize all these different institutions it just it diminishes faith and you know that's why there's kind of a pretty historical record of 250 year lifespans for different empires and we're right on that that uh today's we're, we're interviewing here on july 4th so that's 247 years that's right on that uh plus yeah. or minus yeah. that uh that that threshold yeah i told a friend of mine when i was in ireland uh we were actually driving to dublin in early 2020 and we were having a discussion and i told him that i thought that you know america was kind of primed to head into destabilization civil war perhaps balkanization and he was kind of shocked and he said well why do you think that and i said because i live there right you know, that's i said that's what i'm seeing i'm seeing people frustrated and that was before things got even really bad i mean then after 2020 and you see the whole scamdemic you know come rolling through you saw people's businesses lives wrecked you know it's it's none of that has been good and again i think it all you know from a from a much larger perspective or agenda it is it's 100 percent to just destabilize our country uh i think that you're probably right let's let's dig a little deeper into sort of journalist's role in uh, january yeah. 6th if you don't mind so i know owen Troyer was there i got criticized for sitting down with him and you know there's some uh nbc guy said uh you know this is
rat right now. You've got a former FBI agent sitting down with a man who pled guilty. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, Ryan. Kiss my, I said, I said, oh, kiss Ryan. my ass. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Sedition if, Hunter if, himself. If, if, if Ryan's watching this, I just want to let him he know. Is. He hasn't responded. <laughs> well, he needs to, he needs to, I want his book, but I want it signed by him. So he needs to send that to me. But um, that seems fair. Well, yeah, I, want to, I, yeah I want to dig into your story about that. And then obviously you were covering it too. So how were journalists treated on January 6th? And did it matter what position or what perspective you were coming from? Uh, you know, I think there's a few different attitudes towards that. In my particular case, as I mentioned, you know, I had a breach of objectivity. I fully acknowledge that. And it was and it was on camera. It was live. And and I was small time. So, you know, they knew I didn't have any major money behind me or anything like that to defend mm -hmm. me. So I think that plays into decision making. You know, obviously there were more left leaning journalists there. You know, it's. I don't know what I don't like because I had witnessed so much of it during the BLM riots was people claiming to be journalists engaging in riotous behavior and then saying, Hey, I'm press, I'm press, you know, so that's not what we want. It's just a real hard line right there. When it comes to Owen Troyer himself, you know, I'll always be a fan of Owen Troyer. I drank a lot of his beer in December, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, you know, hanging out in various places. And he's a good guy. Um, I think his heart's in the right place. You know, I know that a lot of journalists these days kind of blur the line between activism and following the story, which is why I kind of make that distinction and say that I was a gonzo journalist. So there was there was certainly part of that to it. Um, you know, but I think with him especially, you know, never going into the building, there's a reason why they're going after after Owen. They they really want to draw that line back to Alex Jones. You know, and really a lot of that goes back to the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, ADL, these other organizations that attack anyone who's kind of oppositional to the George Soros agenda. So, you know, it is what it is. You get wrapped up in it. And I think, you know, my opinion is he was probably wise to plead guilty. Obviously, I did. I think you have to recognize, again, the battlefield. You're not going to win in D.C., so until there's change of venue for any of these cases, it's it's kind of like you you, you got to deal with it however you deal with it. And I think in his case, it's 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 sad. I don't think it's good for the First Amendment. Um, but yeah, it is what it is for sure. It is the world we're living in. Yeah. Let's talk about your case, if you don't mind, kind of the calculus yeah. that went on. They charged you with four. You ended up uh, pleading what guilty to one. Yeah, yeah. They okay. they they offered me a plea agreement very early on. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of back and forth. There's certain parts of that that I don't want to discuss because it has to do with, you know, what I've already, you know, certainly alleged in open court was ineffective counsel. Um, there's so much. I mean, look, I mean, I think you probably know the DOJ is going to sit there. They're going to watch your bank account while they carry their prosecution forward. And they watch you start to struggle. They watch your business fail. You know, they watch you have to sell your house, as I did. You know, they watch your life be destroyed, and then finally they get to to a point where you don't have any choice if you want to move on with your family at all, but to find an end date to it, however you can. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about motivating factors, that was huge. Another one, you know, I haven't even mentioned, but I love the guy, J.D. Rivera. He was there uh, as a videographer out of Pensacola, Florida. And he went to trial on all four charges. He was convicted on all four charges and he ended up, you know, spending the last six months in federal prison. So, 
you know, he, he and I would speak a lot about, you know, what it was, what it wasn't. And our, we kind of had a gentleman's agreement behind the scenes that, you know, depending on which one of us went to trial first, that would inform whoever went after. And so as the, as the cards had it, he went to trial first. So I think I would have been foolish not to look at what occurred in his trial and understand how that might affect mine. And so, you know, that, that played into it as well. But for me, especially, it was really about, okay, well, what can I do behind bars? You know, would I be more effective at messaging and trying to get people to understand the very nuanced truth of January 6th by going to jail? Maybe. But I felt as a communicator, as a writer, as a journalist, all the different things I do, that it was better for me to, to find the, the way forward that had the least amount of incarceration, and that happened to be pleading guilty. And what was the actual count that you pled guilty to? I pled guilty to picketing and parading in a Capitol building. And that's, that's kind of a point of detail there as well, because when they talk about the charges to be dismissed at sentencing were indeed based in fact, I struggled with that. Uh, I never felt as though I was really trespassing. I still don't to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was there as a journalist. Now, whether I, you know, I breached objectivity and ended up picketing and parading, I felt that that was probably a fair characterization of my sin on January 6th. So, you know, in the end, you know, it's a lot of mental gymnastics sometimes. You know, anybody that knows me knows that I really do attempt and try to see things from other people's perspectives. I try not to just be, you know, 100% forward with how I think all the time. So, you know, that's, that's what it was. You know, it's a class B misdemeanor and I'm sure that it will be gone eventually. I mean, I'm supposed to be off probation in another year and a half. So all I know to do is keep working, keep trying to tell the truth and keep moving forward. What are the conditions of the probation that restrict you in any way if they do? Yeah, the conditions have been somewhat annoying. You know, there's kind of been some ongoing discussion about employment. Obviously, it's very hard to get W-2 employment as a independent freelance or otherwise free range journalist. So that's been difficult, but it seems as though we've kind of reached a certain equilibrium with the U S probation office at this time. So that's, that's good. I'm still restricted from traveling, which for somebody like me, that's very difficult. You know, I've, I've said that really, I want to get back over to Eastern Europe as soon as possible. Um, and that's complicated because of this, um, for a variety of reasons. So, you know, but that's all right. You know, in the end, I'm just going to continue doing what I do. You know, I'm happy to have been given the opportunity at the gateway pundit by Jim Hoft. You know, I've been writing a lot over there, trying to produce two stories every day. Sometimes that's easier said than done. And that, you know, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm just trying to move forward, uh, continue to inform the public and, you know, kind of live up to my role as a public servant. When I looked at your body of work, even the last 10 days, you've got, you know, a dozen pieces or so. So we had a, a, a rich field to kind of pull from. What is your process as a journalist, as somebody who can't be everywhere, who has to report, you know, from the comfort of your home, maybe, you know, report from the the sources that you do? What, what do you go through to be able to generate a piece? Well, I think when it comes to January 6th, obviously, I have a lot of ways to get to primary sources on that to get their mm-hmm. take on it. Uh, there's often times when covering these trials that I wish I could be in the courtroom because I, I just have a hard time trusting other people's word. I always, I always have. I like to see for myself. And then if people believe me, great. I want them to believe me because I want to tell the truth. But, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed that Mel Holly, who's done work on the Justice and Jeopardy podcast, she's talked to more J6ers than anybody else. So we've kind of come to an agreement where she can correspond with me from the courtroom, and I trust her. I think that she's honest when she speaks to me, so that's been good. As far as, you know, the other things that I report on, you know, I report on national security, intelligence matters, you know, even UAP, as we mentioned, you know, unidentified aerial phenomena. I have very good sources in those realms, in those fields. Um, some of them uh, choose to stay anonymous a lot of the time. Others have been gracious enough to let me use their names in different articles. And so that's that's what I lean on is experience and people that I've learned to trust in order to analyze very complex situations. And then I honestly, the, the problem with the way that business works is there's not a whole lot of incentive to get both sides of the story. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously the gateway pundit caters most of the time, I think, to a right wing audience. So that's difficult. I mean, I wish I had the time and budget to really dig into stories the way I would, you know, like to all the time. You know, I think that's something that podcasts can actually be real effective at if you can get a good panel. Um, you know, so I, that's what I try to do. I just try to find reliable sources that I can report on and then, you know, try to find varying uh, perspectives of whatever event it is that I'm reporting on. All right. What is your methodology? How do you evaluate sources? I, I come from a different kind of background, but I think maybe um, maybe they apply in the same sort of way. When you're doing journalistic work, You've got a source in front of you, someone that you've talked with. You say you trust them. How do you decide that that, that works out? Well, there's there's uh, there's some that I trust, and there's many, many others that I will always try to verify. So, you know, that's that's a we were kind of mentioning earlier before is that as a journalist, a lot of times you feel as though you're not allowed to have friends. You know, it's it. You know, it's it's very lonely if you're doing it right. Mm -hmm. It's good to have friendly friendly relationships with people, but you know when people are also the subject of your work, you don't want to cross that line too much. Um, so it's it's difficult. You know, each source is going to be evaluated differently. I think depending on what they say, what they're alleging, you know, what their perspective is, was their video. You know all of these different things when it comes to the sources that i've worked with out of the military i mean these are people that i've known for years they've never once led me astray and so as far as i'm concerned their opinions their analysis their perspective and and what they tell me is gold i don't i don't second guess it a lot but they know they know how i am i i i, I always second guess everything let's be honest <laughs> That's fair. You said a journalist can't have friends. It kind of reminds me of the uh, the image. You, you remember the original Batman with Michael Keaton, where he's got that guy Knox, and Knox is like kind of just this obnoxious personality yeah. that runs around. Nobody likes him, but everybody talks to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Knox. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I try not to be that guy. I know that people think that that's effective. I take a different approach generally. Yeah, that's not very effective. I, but yeah, that's the kind of yeah. classic, you know, news. Oh yeah, the looking. classic up there. You know, writing it down. Ah, what do you think about face. that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all that. You know, that's that's a very good stereotype. I think there's a place for that. Mm -hmm. You know, to be kind of very aggressive, ambush journalism as it's been said, but you know, I think that over the years, because I've dealt with so many people who wanted to remain confidential, that when you're doing investigations, especially a lot of times you're dealing with people who don't want to come forward, they don't want to use their name. Uh, and, and a lot of times they have legitimate reasons for that. 
you know, it's, you know, a lot of the things that I've worked on, you know, very dangerous. You know, I've, I've known people who died mysteriously. So it, it just goes with the territory and you try to verify things. And when you're doing long investigations, which there's not a whole lot of that going on necessarily with the work I do at Gateway Pundit. But when, you know, as well as anybody and investigations can take a long time before you come to any definitive answer. Um, so, you know, I just try to, you know, check all the boxes as I go through and, and pick it apart with a skeptical eye. Yeah. As a skeptic, how critical are you of your own work? When you look at it, you reevaluate what you're putting out there. Immensely critical. I, I often, you know, I think, you know, it's funny, even when I was younger, you know, I, I, you know, you, I wrote music. I used to play in bars and do that and write songs. You know, I think everything I've ever done, I'm critical of. Uh, even my work as a plumber, I mean, gosh, you know, everything. If you're not able to sit back, analyze your own work and find mistakes, I don't think you'll ever be effective. I think that's part of self-reflection and, and just more of that goes back to art of war, you know, and you want to learn to understand yourself because it makes you a more effective human being. So that's something that I'm always trying to improve. You know, it's like as we're trying to build a more perfect union, well, I'm trying to build a more perfect version of myself as well. You think that's common in journalism today? Oh, man. It, so much of journalism is just garbage propaganda these days, to be honest. And as someone who understands propaganda and fake news well, you know, you can spot it. I understand a lot of the motivations that go into that. Obviously, money is always going to be a major motivator for people. You've got to make a living. And it's it's hard to make a living in this business. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I, I try to just approach each journalist as a human being first when you're when you're looking at that. But, you know, there's some that are leftists that I think are pretty good. You know, I, you know, Ryan Riley, he's a funny one to bring up because as far as someone who's reported on January 6th, he's been there from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So you can't say he's not informed whether you agree with his takes or not. You know, that's another thing, but I don't have any major disrespect for, for Ryan. There's others who've reported on January 6th that because, you know, my opinions are pretty negative, I won't mention their names. Uh, but you're certainly you know. welcome to, by the way, I don't, shy uh, oh, I know, like I, I know, I know, <laughs> I just, I try not to, I, I just try not to do that. You know, I think if it, it's in, in my situation, you know, as I, you know, voice opinion, I would rather voice those opinions and have them be positive of people than focusing on the negativity because like we were even saying, I mean, nobody likes good news. Well, sorry, you're listening to Kyle's show and I want to get positive right now. So. <laughs> 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 I, there's too much negativity in the world. We need, there is we need a lot of negativity. Sunshine. There is a lot. So some of your reporting, uh, I saw you recently covered sort of President Trump talking, um, Lindsey Graham on stage with him. Macro level, what do you see going on with this, you know, maybe the Republican side of the 2024 race? And then if you see something interesting going on the Democrat side, too, what, what's your take on coming up? We're, we're entering, I guess, full swing the election cycle. So it's happening one way or another. Oh, what a mess. <laughs> what? What an absolute mess. I mean, it, look, I, you know, I always kind of, you know, I'll, I'll always call him Uncle Donnie. Uncle Donnie, he's something else. Uncle Donnie loves him some him. I will say that. Um, I think he's qualified to do the job still. 
Uh, I think the Republican and you, and you establishment. Mentioned that you, you didn't vote for him in 2016. No, we have the same pattern. No. So maybe tell people that. Yeah. I, I mean, look, in, in 2016, I looked at Donald Trump as being this, you know, bloviating asshole, to be honest. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of his show or anything else. You know, I didn't like his personality. Uh, it really took four years of his presidency to kind of look at the situation. You know, and back in 2020, I was convinced that we were going to be going to war with China within five years. Um, and I said, I said, well, Biden is compromised. I mean, I knew it then. You know, I knew the laptop was real when it came out. I didn't I didn't have any doubts about who Joe Biden was. He's he's a corrupt, really horrible human being. And, you know, Donnie may not be perfect, but, uh, you know, he he was the right guy for the job, in my opinion, at the time. I think 2024 is going to be interesting. You know, the obviously the concerns about legitimacy of the election process play in. They're trying to put him in prison. If he wasn't a threat to that kind of establishment, I don't think they would be going after him so hard. But it's but it's but it is so tied in with all the opposition messaging. You know, you've got this this guy who tried to overthrow democracy. Um, you know, I'm really interested in uh, Robert Kennedy's campaign. I think that that's a positive development for America. I you know I remarked my my father and I were speaking about this the other night, actually, where I, I said, you know, really, as a president, what we need someone who understands the problems that we face on a national security level. I think that's insanely important right now. You know, obviously, the domestic issues are really important. But they also have to be willing to kind of bring the country back together. We're so fractured, we're so divided, that unless the next president can really work and bring us back together, I don't think it'll be successful. So, you know, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham, he's Lindsey Graham. A lot of people don't like him for a lot of different reasons. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, th I think, you know, Trump knows the game well at this point. A lot of people have said that he didn't really understand what he was getting into when he came into office. They think that he should have drained the swamp immediately. You know, I kind of, as usual, take a more nuanced position on that where, even when people talk about the deep state, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize is just how compartmentalized that, I don't know what we want to call it, phenomena is, where, you know, it isn't a monolithic controlling entity. There's a lot of different interests within that, within the military industrial complex. And they're all vying for power and seeing who they can influence and seeing what will benefit them. So again, a very, very complicated situation. You know, this is going to be crucial for the United States, uh, how we Trump handle ourselves in the next idiot. presidential election. <laughs> <laughs> is that our buddy, uh, Lindsey Graham there? Thanks for that one, oh, Ryan. Wow, that caught me Lindsay. off guard. I was like, who just came into my ears? Uh, where did that come from? Yeah, yeah you that's Lindsey greatest hits. It'll be, it'll be, yeah, probably not near as entertaining as the Bercano stuff from earlier, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there he is. There's Ryan <laughs> popping onto the screen. Appreciate that. Ambushing like us with a here. Let me let me throw up for everybody so if they're watching. Trump is a fucking idiot. <laughs> That's very troubling. I can't believe you did that on C-SPAN. Um, well, look, look, this is where we're at. This is where we're at, and and, and you know that could again, have never I, happened ten years ago. Probably not ten years ago, but I think it would have happened in like 1780. You think that's where they were at then? 
there was a duel, as I recall. Yes. So, I mean, you know, politics is a dirty game. People are going to say dirty things, and a lot of times they want to kill each other. Do you know? Do you know where the expression "toe the line" comes from? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, that's when you you go toe up to box, right? Or is that something different? No, it's something different. So oh. it is a it is a political command coming from, I believe, the House of Commons, but I it might be the House of Lords. Uh, it's it's a British expression. The gentleman must toe the line means that someone has to step back to the line. There is a line between the two houses or the two sides of the benches. And that distance is the distance of a man's arm plus the distance of a sword times two plus one foot. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. That's probably so, a good idea. So British, British, and I, I took a British party politics course. So if somebody finds that to be un, uh, inaccurate, then that's what I was taught when I was over in, in London going and studying. But I find it fascinating that they actually thought it was so important that for them to have civil discourse, no matter how rowdy they got, they had to be just far enough that they couldn't cross swords. And that's that's where politics used to be. And that's how this country was founded, looking at that system, which is quite funny to me. Well, again, I think that's one of those things where, you know, talking about something in principle is fantastic. Reality tends to be a lot messier. So it does. You know, we have a messy political situation, but, you know, it's been a messy world for the last forever how many thousand years we want to talk about yeah all of them i think you're correct yeah. what about yeah. the democrat side you see anything interesting happening over there we see robert f kennedy coming in that's cool what else yeah yeah i mean uh you know Corn cornell west kind of entering the fray i think is probably more a premonition than anything a lot of people talk about you know whether or not michelle obama uh will get involved in that you know they're gonna have to come up with something to legitimize it, if nothing else, even if everything's rigged and they're just going to install the next, you know, Democratic president, you know, I don't think anybody's going to buy a second Biden win. <laughs> He's just so bad. He's just so bad on so many levels, you know. So, you know, again, I would like to see, you know, Trump versus RFK. I think that that would be the most American election we could have. I think that America would probably benefit in either outcome with that particular setup and scenario. So that's two populists in that way. Well, yeah, but it, it's about America first. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, we can even talk about my political leanings and everything else, but in <laughs> the end, I love this country. I know. If you're yeah. not watching, but, you're not watching our rumble channel. You're missing out on Ryan having some fun with some of the, uh, the photos that exist in the world that are, well, he knew, he knew that when I said Michelle Obama, what I was really thinking was big Mike and I was trying to refrain. So you know, thanks for that. <laughs> I, I got to share. He's over there being a mind reader. Is he psychic been in the remote <laughs> viewing program or what? He's got that going on. Yeah. He yeah. can, he can look into your brain. When I was working surveillance for the bureau, this is just a silly aside here. We'll lighten up things a little bit. Um, I'm sitting on surveillance and most people don't have a great image of what that looks like. They've seen it on cop shows. They haven't experienced it themselves. Go sit in a room by yourself and look out of a window for eight hours and don't get out of that seat. So carry a bottle so you can pee, carry whatever you want next to you, a lunch in a pack. That's what my life was, you know, thousands of hours a year. And, and I really enjoyed it because it's like hunting. You have to be very patient and occasionally you get to do fun stuff. And most of the time you're waiting for it to happen. And in the middle of all this stuff on one of these days, my wife reaches out to me and I can't remember if we had our first daughter was born yet or not, but I'm pretty sure it was early on. We, we were, you know, just doing this FBI thing. No, it must've been, she, we must've had at least one kid. So I'm sitting there and she calls me up or she sends me some text messages and she says, is it possible that Michelle Obama is a dude? And I'm looking down at the text messages and I'm thinking, 
what are you watching, my dear? What is going on back home when I am not there at the house? And then she starts sending me link after link. And one of them was a great Alex Jones compilation video or some crazy thing like that. It was definitely InfoWars. And so I start watching it and I go, oh, man, uh, I was really pretty confident before I started this conversation. And now this is a very troubling video to watch, right? You watch that stuff and you go, now at least I have some shade of doubt. And I'm not sure that I care either way. It doesn't really matter to me, but it was you know, really Kyle, weird. Kyle, you got to be careful when you start going down that line of thinking, because the next thing you know, you're going to be wearing a buffalo hat and screaming, freedom! Right. Well, as my buddy uh, Steve Friend likes to talk about, I didn't get the copy of the Constitution. Like, I've got a little pocket Constitution. It doesn't have the secret ink on the back that says, when the buffalo hat wearing man reaches the speaker's floor and sits in the chair, then your preferred branch of government takes over, your preferred party. I didn't get that copy. I guess yeah. it's out there. Maybe you saw it when you were at January 6th. Did you see them kind of you know, trading that well, around? I, yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to the Constitution, it just depends on who you talk to, what it says. So, yeah, there's, Does it there's, say what a woman is, or is that not something we do anymore? I don't think we want to get into definitions. There were even some issues with what they considered to be a human being, as I recall. So They continue to. I actually put a tweet out today, and, and or not today, maybe it was yesterday, but it was something to the effect of, and, and Ben Shapiro said this, and and Josie, the redheaded libertarian, is big on this one as well. But it's essentially the definition of personhood have been the two original sins of this country. And that falls mm -hmm. under whether you talk about abortion or slavery. They're just failed definitions of personhood. Curious, you mentioned um, kind of a, a belief in God earlier. I, uh, did, I, did I take that correctly? Was that something oh, that's yeah. been guiding you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, as as an anarchist constitutionalist, where do you <laughs> fall in the in the faith in the, spectrum? In the, in, the, in the faith spectrum, I yeah. am. Uh, I try to increase my reliance on faith every day. Uh, I was raised in church, and you know, as somebody who's you know skeptical, analytical, you know, looking at a lot of different things, uh, studied different religions, anthropology. I kind of talked myself into being agnostic, uh, really close to atheism for the most part. And that carried on through my life for years. Um, and then, and then there was, there was a situation. I don't know how else to describe it. Uh, you know, I'm sitting here, it's like, I'm trying to write a book right now about all these different experiences. And this is the one part that I'm still struggling with because it's just so monumental in my life. But it, it really did feel there was there was a moment where I was given um, a vision or a download, kind of really difficult to describe, and that set me on this path to the point where, in a lot of ways, I saw things happen in my mind before they did. Um, I, I know that it, like it's like you start talking about this and a lot of people will just say you're crazy but it for me that was it was monumental it uh, it totally shifted my thinking I was no longer doubtful that there was a God um, I was convinced of it so it's it's funny a, a friend of mine uh, that I I speak to every once and again. Uh, his name's Dr. Jack Sarfati. Some people will know him. But we were having a conversation about that because he does a lot of work uh, in uh, theoretical physics and talks about things like retrocausation, the idea that you know future events have an effect on your present time or your present location in space-time. 
and he he mentions something about you know being you know Saul from Tarsus a little bit of that to it you know or even or even the idea of being John on the Isle of Patmos where sometimes you're seeing things and you don't know how to describe them mm-hmm. so you know my experience with with God or you know a higher power cosmic consciousness some might say it's it's very it's very nuanced like every other part of me but it's very real and and I try to let that guide me in everything I do because to me it's to me in my own experiences I I can't I can't understand how I've experienced all the things I've had I have all of the different amazing people that I've met you know especially as a plumber right I'm just a plumber you're my new you know? favorite plumber so far. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've just had all these amazing experiences. Um, and I've always been kept safe in some really, really dangerous situations as well, you know, far beyond January 6th even. And I, I don't know how that happens without divine providence. So I just continue to kind of let that guide me in my life. I try to be the best version of myself I can be. And I try to improve all the time, but yeah, I mean, faith is so wrapped up in that. So as a, as a, uh, you know, anarchist, constitutionalist, you know, Christian, I, you know, that, that term's interesting to me. I, there's certain connotations with that, that I may not a hundred percent agree with, but I think that the example that Christ gave, I think is amazing. Um, so yeah, it all plays into it. And we talked about Tolstoy earlier. He was, he was a very Christian man, also an anarchist. You know, he talked about things like the kingdom of God being within you. I think that that's something we as humans can start to understand more about ourselves. Actually, another very good friend of mine, uh, people should maybe check it out on LinkedIn. I know I know he put it up there, uh, Dr. Michael Moran, uh, former Special Forces, great guy, um, scientist. But he just recently put out, you know, kind of some statements about, you know, discovering our connection to the quantum universe uh, through quantum thinking and quantum experience, you know, this understanding that particles that are vast distances from each other can have an influence on one another. This is a uh, very light reading, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's and like, like a lot of the people I talk to, you know, I, I, I find myself, you know, speaking to people or listening to them sometimes and they're, and they're going off. I mean, we're talking, you know, you know, top of their field scientists, you know, and they start going on and on. And I'm just sitting there going, I am a Neanderthal. You know, so, you know, I, I love yeah, that. But can, they, but can they turn a wrench and can they stop the leak on their That's sink? True. So there, there's a place for everything. And there's also nothing more common than an experience of the divine in every culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it goes back as far as human history and it's very real. I mean, when we, it's like, that's where it gets into things, you know, that, uh, you know, John Alexander called high strangeness, you know, Colonel John Alexander and, you know, all these different phenomena that are experienced. And that's why I love that particular field, even in my work, trying to report on it is because it's fascinating. It's, it's like the ultimate philosophical questions of where we came from, you know, how we were made, what is the true nature of human consciousness? What is a soul? Those are the questions that I think are the absolute most important for any journalist to dig into. So that's why I try to try to do that and keep that part of my work as well. Because again, going back to my experiences in Armenia and everything since then, it's divine providence. I can't explain it any other way. So by investigating, you know, that subject further, I'm attempting to understand my own experiences as well. I like that very much.
I think that uh, we could all aspire to that. Let's uh, let's wrap with uh, what do you see going on? You've got young kids or younger kids, and I, I, yeah, yeah, I got I got uh, two boys. They're getting older. One's an adult. Okay, I'm trying to kick him out of the house as quickly as I can. Of course, well, they're entering the world. They're still under your uh, under your purview, right? Yeah, yeah, you... yeah. My, go, go ahead. My oldest is eighteen. My my youngest is uh, fifteen right now. So okay, so older than mine. You got started earlier. By the way, that's a much smarter thing to do than what I've got going on. I've got, yeah, uh, I've, I've got one that I'm, I'm a year older than you, and I've got one that's on the way still. So <laughs> I'm about to start my clock at zero. Yeah, well, <laughs> you, go figure. You know, I, I had kids, you know, accidentally, the first one. Sure. I always, I always remind them of that as well. I just say, you know, try to remember you were an accident. And then we have a laugh. But, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, I worked really hard to get myself to a point where, you know, I was finally like in a house where I said, okay, I could be a grandpa in this house, right? Mm-hmm. I was to that point in my life. And then I went and screwed it all up by becoming a journalist. So, you know, I don't know, you know, I just try to give these kids the best example I can. Yeah. What do they say? You know? yeah, a man makes plans and God laughs or something to that effect. Uh, yeah. My youngest, my youngest, he's, we, we have an inside joke where he actually drew a picture of me and I think it's sitting right behind me actually, but he drew a picture of me that that was taken from a photo of me you know outside of the capitol and and he and he calls it papa insurrectionist that's what we call it <laughs> laughingly through all of this so you know it's been I, I love my boys they're so good to me and they've they've always been wise beyond their years in so many ways you know life wasn't always perfect for them and especially not in the last two and a half years but i i'm consistently amazed i feel blessed in such complex understandings of, of the world or even people, they have a lot of wisdom. And I know, you know, you know, I don't know if they'll watch this maybe I'll tell them to, but you know, my oldest, especially I'm really hard on him, you know, trying to get him to become more responsible, you know, go be an adult, be a productive member of society, boy, what, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, that's just part of being a parent. But I do, I do value them so much. I mean, when we talk about these, these things that drive you as a human being, even as a journalist, so much of what I do as a journalist was just me trying to explain the world to my boys. And it's still that way. It's such an important distinction there. And I think that uh, I had somebody say something on Twitter the other day about, oh, we're still just as valuable if we don't have children. And we, you know, we, we care about this country just as much. And it's like, but do you? Because you, you're only on the planet for so long. And the people that are going to inherit are really what I look forward to. What do you what do you see your boys inheriting? Uh, you got one that's that's ready to vote right now. It sounds like and and has an opportunity to do that. Another one that's going to be doing so in the next cycle right afterwards. So they're they're about to be released and on their own. What do you what do you want America to look like and and what are they going to want America to live in? Oh man. <laughs> well, it's like I try not to eat too many black pills, but I do caution both of my boys about the world we're entering into. Uh, I think we're going to have to have some pretty monumental shifts in thinking uh, for things to improve. Right now, things are not improving. Right now, it's my opinion that they are getting worse and that times are going to become more difficult. When when the scamdemic started and I realized, you know, after the two weeks was up and they kept it going, that it wasn't going to be anything normal and that they were moving forward with an agenda I had read about years before, I told the boys, I said, the world's going to get very tough and you guys need to get better, faster and stronger. I said, you need to read more books, you need to educate yourselves, you need to get physically fit, um, 
you know, it's always a hard thing trying to tell your boys how to learn how to fight, especially when they're much more well-behaved than I was at their age, you know? Um, but this, you know, the reality we're moving into is going to be difficult and it could get really, really bad really quickly. I think a lot of people don't understand how bad things can get, you know, hopefully they would look at what's going on in France a little bit, which I haven't had a lot of time to dig into that particular subject, but you see that, I mean, society hangs on a thread all the time. So, you know, with my boys, as far as voting, for sure, my oldest now being 18, I've told him, I said, well, I said, do me a favor. And if you can't tell me about the people you're voting for, don't vote. You know, I think, you know, we all need to do better as citizens. So that's something I encourage them to do. I, I know I kind of strayed away from the original question a little bit. Uh, there's just so many factors at play. Uh, for them in the world I want to leave. I mean, I always say that really what I want to get to in my life, I still want to get to the point where, you know, I'm putting orange peels in my mouth like the godfather and chasing my grandchildren around in the garden until I keel over from a heart attack. That's mm -hmm. really what I want out of life at this point. That seems like a, a pretty noble goal. <laughs> let's let's leave it on that. I hope you'll come back and uh, talk to us again as you do some more of the reporting and, uh, and now that you're kind of... Um, you're out there generating. If you're doing 10 pieces a week, I think we got uh, plenty to talk about in the future. I, I wanted people to get a good grasp of who we're talking to when we bring people on. So I'm, I really appreciate you spending the day with us. Tell people what they can find you and then sort of the upcoming projects. You mentioned you might be doing a podcast as well that's going to be a little less serious. Yeah. You know, always I encourage people who are interested in January 6th to go and see what condemnedusa.org is doing. Uh, there's always something we, you know, we produced a very, you know, extensive report for Congress about the weaponization of justice in America. So that's that's part of what we do. A lot of legal advocacy there, investigation, various other things. And, you know, that's run entirely by support uh, from from, you know, those who think it's important. So if you think it's important, please donate to that. Um, the other thing, you know, obviously follow, you know, my work, my stories at the Gateway Pundit. Um, like you say, two a day, you can find me there. Sean Bradley Witzman, free range journalist. Uh, a variety of topics. I, I, I kind of hit a lot of different subjects, so that's appreciated. And then social media, at Sean Witzman on Twitter or at free range journalist on Truth Social, uh, at free range journalist on Instagram. Those are the main ones. Um and, and like I say, if anybody has any stories out there, this is something I will always say when I have a chance that you don't think is getting enough attention or you think is valuable, feel free to talk to me about it. I'm always, I'm always open to explore. So, you know, that, I think that's how we do it, you know, and, and we just keep moving forward. Kyle, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure, sir. No, I enjoyed it. The pleasure was all mine. Thanks so much. We will do this again. And, uh, folks, thank you for your time and listening. We'll go ahead and, uh, Transition back out of here and do one of these five-star reviews in just one second. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that was today's Kyle Serafin Show. You have been listening to our show streamed live from Liberty Hill, Texas. Don't forget to like the video if you're watching it on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. And uh, share a link from today's show to your favorite social media platform. Please consider subscribing to us on Rumble or wherever you get your podcasts. The show will continue to grow because of you, the listeners. And because of five-star reviews just like this one. Let's read this one right here. Comes a couple days back from Truckee117 entitled The Real American Heroes, Stunning Investigations of How 
the deep state is trying to control this country. As a former law enforcement officer, I have worked and trained with guys like Kyle who are the real deal. It's not just Kyle's opinion, but he comes with the proof and facts, just like a real investigator would. Uh, again, Trucky 117. Thanks so much, Trucky. We do appreciate those things. And I do want to say thanks to my guest, Sean. Uh, folks, you can find all of his follow, all of his information in the show notes. So click through there on his social media and check him out on thegatewaypundit.com. Um, our show is only possible because of some of the hard work and the technical skills of our producer, Ryan. You saw some of his work today. You can follow Ryan uh, on Twitter at Ryan Matta, M-A-T-T-A Media on Twitter there again. And then also our opening theme was composed and performed by my brother, Casey Serafin, a very talented musician. And I'm grateful he's let me use some of his work here today. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, folks. We will see you again on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.